Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. President Trump just finished up with the G20 in Buenos Aires. As always with this president, news and intrigue followed him overseas. To discuss, we're happy to have with us the senior senator from Illinois, Dick Durbin. He's also the Democratic whip in the Senate, second only to minority leader Chuck Schumer. Senator, welcome, and I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I had a great one, trying to overcome all the food I ate at this very moment. Indeed, indeed. Well, before we jump into the issues around the G20, first I wanted to talk about the big news over the weekend. Uh, Former President Bush passed away at age 94, and I believe you knew him well, and you served as a congressman during his term in Illinois' 20th, correct? Right. I did know him, and uh, though we disagreed on some policy decisions, some of his other decisions as uh, president, I had great respect for him. I went back to a book I read called Fly Boys, and it was a story of Navy pilots in World War II, and it told the story of his mission, uh, where as a young Navy pilot, maybe the youngest, uh, he was shot down and rescued by a submarine. Uh, He did his training, incidentally, at uh, Navy Pier, where they taught Navy pilots to fly. So I kind of started with a very uh, healthy respect and admiration for him as a hero. Uh, And I will tell you, I thought his background as an ambassador our ambassador to China, rather, an ambassador to the United Nations, vice president, president. Uh, he maintained the office with dignity. Uh, he was a person who was responsive. Uh, his word was good. Uh, qualities which we value in a president really miss. Well, he was a one-term president, but it was a consequential presidency. During his presidency, the Soviet Union collapsed and the Middle East sort of blew up. Do you feel that President George H.W. Bush left the world a better place than he found it? No doubt about it. For example, uh, he doesn't get enough credit. He deserves more, as uh, his son said on 60 Minutes on Sunday, uh, because he was a major force in supporting the reunification of Germany. I'm sure there was a lot of trepidation and worry in Europe because of the history of the Absolutely. 20th century. Yep. Uh, but he felt that it was a positive thing, and, and he was right. His background as ambassador to China gave him an insight there as they were developing into a much different global uh, power. And, of course, when the wall came down in Berlin uh, and the end of the Soviet Union as we knew it, he happened to be right at that spot where we needed him. Senator, while you served when President Bush was in office, it was a Democratic Congress. And yet, in spite of that, you were both able to come together and get things done like education reform, the ADA. As you look ahead to the 116th Congress starting in January, what are some things that President Trump could learn that would help him get things done with you? Well, he needs to learn the art of the Washington deal, uh, to be very blunt. And the Washington deal gets down to very basic things. Is your word any good? Are you looking to find compromise? Uh, And if you can say yes to both of those, you've got a chance. So far, uh, we haven't seen that, Mr. President. Uh, I hope that changes. It could change as quickly as the closing weeks in December. But I've tried to work with him on immigration. It blew up in my face. Uh, He is demanding the wall, even at the expense of shutting down the government. Uh, These are things which don't uh, really send a signal that he's looking to change. And actually, his rhetoric has also been a problem. As a matter of fact, it was you that um, revealed to the world the language that the president used when he called certain countries shithole countries during that time. I didn't go to the press with that story. It wasn't until I came to Chicago and it hit the press through other sources And then woke up the next morning to see the president denying he said it. I just couldn't stand letting that go without responding. He said it. He said it repeatedly. 
and the words that he used, I naively thought, I wonder if any president's ever spoken these words in the White House. His worldview is uh, very clouded and very difficult to follow and not consistent with the traditions of either political party. Mm. Well, Senator, we'll transition over to the G20. There was the G20 uh, summit recently in Buenos Aires. And during that summit, there was a trade pact signed, but also news broke where um, Michael Cohen, the president's uh, personal attorney, uh, shared information with special counsel Robert Mueller that basically revealed that the president of the United States lied when he said that he had no business dealings with Russia. What can you say about that and what should happen next? Well, uh, of course, uh, I want Mueller to complete his investigation uh, without interference from President Trump or the Department of Justice or Congress. Uh, He has work to do. The difficulty that Bob Mueller's run into, and I've known him for years, and I respect him very much, the difficulty he's run into, he never hired a public relations expert. And he's up against a president who tweets two or three times a day characterizing and mischaracterizing what he's doing. So he's been at a disadvantage. He's tried to be a professional prosecutor and not a headline grabber. Uh, at this point, and I think he ought to be allowed to complete his investigation. The importance of what came out last week is the fact that the president actively misled us, and Mr. Cohen said that he was supporting the president in trying to mislead the American people about his involvement with Russia. This gets to the heart of whether or not the president uh, is either leaning toward Russia or is being blackmailed by Russia in terms of some of his decisions. That is fundamental to his service as president. And so soon, Prosecutor Mueller is going to drop a report. And in that report, there'll be some devastating facts that'll come to light. But your colleague, Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, won't even let a vote come to the floor to protect the special prosecutor. And so given those obstacles, and even with a Democratic House, I mean, you may not even be able to get uh, a censure, much less any discussion about impeachment. And so when this report drops, the president will say, so what? And then it becomes, now what? Well, but I, I have to say that don't forget the fact that to date, Robert Mueller has indicted 35 individuals and entities. Six have pled, I guess seven have pled guilty now. One has been found guilty at trial. I mean, I don't know what his final report will say relating to the president specifically or any of the people really close to the president. But we owe it to him to allow uh, him to complete the investigation. In terms of congressional action that you mentioned earlier, I I would suggest to my colleagues that shouldn't be our highest priority. We need to hold this president accountable. But the notion of removal of the president, I think, is a mistake at this moment. We ought to focus on what we can do to show the American people that a Congress that is intent on helping them can come up with solutions to the challenges they face. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And with us right now is Dick Durbin. He's the senior senator from Illinois. And he's also Democratic whip in the Senate. And we're talking about the G20 summit and also President Trump's alleged connection to Russia. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about Mexico and that country's future as they just swore in their 58th president. Uh, Senator, also at the G20, the president skipped scheduled meetings with President Putin of Russia and also with Saudi Arabia. And the president pretty much recently said that the fact that the CIA came out with evidence that uh, Mohammed bin Salman ordered the murder of a journalist, a United States resident, that the fact that we have business with Saudi Arabia will not be an obstacle. And so what are your thoughts? Well, I can tell you that last week, 14 Republicans decided they'd had enough of President Trump 
in the situation in Saudi Arabia. They voted with us to make sure the United States did not continue to participate on Saudi side in the Yemen war. Uh, and I voted that way not only last week, but in the previous vote. What has happened there is a humanitarian scandal of epic proportions of a population of 28 million people. Half of them are subject to death now by malnutrition and a famine. Uh, and the United States uh, cannot be party to this Saudi effort. I am not uh, cheering on the Iranians and what they're trying to do. But frankly, the Saudi approach to this thing is horrible. Uh, they are trying to kill so many civilians that it somehow changes the politics of Yemen. And to me, the United States should not be party to that. Fourteen Republicans agreed last week. It was quite a rebuke of the president. Comments that I've seen and commentary that I've read states that this could be a domestic security issue, that if we give the Saudis a pass, couldn't Duterte in the Philippines or Erdogan in Turkey or Putin in Russia decide to put out hits on American citizens or dissidents or critics abroad? Do you see that danger? Well, that would be in the extreme, but I will tell you, it is not beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, we have got to make it clear that what happened to Mr. Khashoggi in that consulate in Istanbul was reprehensible, unacceptable, even by someone who might style himself an ally of the United States. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that the crown prince had knowledge of, if, if not was party two, what happened to Mr. Khashoggi. You just don't have the top 17 security officials in the crown prince's retinue involved in this, directly involved in this, and keeping him in the dark. That is inconceivable. Do you think the CIA director Haspel should have been allowed to testify? It blew up on the administration when we had this briefing and the CIA didn't show up. Democrats and Republicans said to Mattis and to Pompeo, what are we doing here? Where's the CIA? They're the ones who gathered the information. We don't want to know your take on it. We want to know her take on it. And I think that was one of the driving forces that brought 14 Republicans around on that key Senate floor vote. Uh, Senator, there was a trade pact that was agreed to between the U.S., Mexico and Canada. But, of course, any trade pacts have to get approval from the Senate. Do you think that this current agreement will have any chance of getting through Congress? In, in all honesty, I don't think any uh, members of Congress had an opportunity to study it in detail. You know, I do believe that it is sensible for us to review trade agreements, particularly one of 20 or 25 years in duration, to make sure that it's topical and still serves the nations that are involved. NAFTA, of course, very controversial from the outset under President Clinton, and uh, I think it was time to renegotiate it. We need to look at the particulars to find out if at the end of the day it's good for America uh, and is consistent with the strength of our neighboring nations in Canada and Mexico. And Senator, uh, GM just recently announced that they're going to cut thousands of jobs that will affect many people in the Midwest region. If you're a citizen in Illinois or if you work for the auto industry here and you have concerns, what do you say to citizens here in Illinois? Well, I think we're seeing two or three things at work here. One is a there's a transformation in consumer appetite for vehicles. People are looking now for SUVs and trucks. Part of that is a lifestyle decision. The other part was a decision by the Trump administration to walk away from efforts uh, to improve fuel efficiency of vehicles. And so the companies aren't making the cars they once made, uh, hybrids, for example, that would serve our environment well and still meet the needs of most families. And so there aren't as many being offered. Secondly, I think this reflects the emergence of millennials, as tomorrow's car buyers are not. 
many of them uh, aren't as smitten with the idea of the brand new Chevy, the brand new Ford, and mm-hmm. can't wait for it to be announced. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call Uber and get in the car and, and move from one spot to the other without even noticing, make Very it true. Uber vehicle. So I think that uh, we have to be cognizant of the fact that consumer appetites are changing uh, and acknowledge it. I don't believe uh, the United States should give up in the car business. It's a major mover in our economy. I'm glad that President Obama, at the critical moment of our nation's recession, came in to help Chrysler GM. And what do these automakers owe the people since the United States did bail out um, these automakers after the financial collapse? That's a very good question. You know, we did bail them out. Then the administration, the Trump administration, turned around and gave them the sweetest little tax deal in the world. And they answered it by saying, good, we're going to just eliminate American jobs because of that. Well, come on. I mean, that tax deal gave them uh, more profits than ever. And yet they couldn't even continue production of vehicles or find new opportunities to employ the American people uh, who worked for them. I mean, that to me is not a good faith response. And finally, Senator J.B. Pritzker will take office as the new governor of Illinois next month. And I'm just wondering if, as you look at the problems across the state and issues of concern, what are some of the things you hope will change in a new administration in Springfield? I think we need an honest appraisal of our state's challenges, and they're significant because of the pensions and other budget issues. Uh, we've been adrift for about four years under Governor Rauner. I support J.B. Pritzker and Juliana Stratton because uh, I think he's going to tackle this honestly. And my only advice to him was there aren't any easy answers. Be honest with the people of Illinois. Let's get this behind us for the next generation. And I think he's dedicated to doing just that. He needs the cooperation of the General Assembly to make it work. But I think he can get it done. I want to help him if I can. Dick Durbin is the senior senator from Illinois, and he's also the Democratic whip in the Senate. Senator, thank you so much for joining us on Worldview. Thanks, Steve. We started off our conversation with Senator Durbin talking about the legacy of the late President George H.W. Bush. Earlier today, Morning Shift had extensive coverage of the late president with a conversation with presidential historian Michael Beschloss and former Illinois Governor Jim Edgar. Go to our website at WBEZ.org to hear that. Coming up next, Mexico has a new president. We'll talk about the way forward for that country. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview. From WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. On Saturday, leftist leader and social activist Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, known as AMLO, was sworn in as Mexico's 58th president. 
Following a cleansing ritual by indigenous elders to symbolize purity and liberation, AMLO dived into his speech by attacking free market policies that he feels have devastated Mexico's economy and its citizens. He vowed also to keep his election promise to end corruption. He said, I will not lie, I will not steal or betray the people of Mexico. Uh, Vice President Pence also attended the ceremony along with the president's daughter, Ivanka. With us to discuss this new transition in Mexico is Milena Ong. She's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much, Milena. Thank you so much for having me. And so Mr. Obrador, is, um, he gives really great and long speeches. And um, from your observations, we spoke earlier that there were aspects that were expected, but also there were some very unexpected aspects to um, his inauguration speech. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, And just let me begin just to give a little bit of a context as to what kind of country is he uh, taking over. Mm -hmm. Because um, basically he came into power at at a moment of a crucial crisis. And I'm not only talking about... The violence, uh, of course, which, you know, we've we've read a lot about. So in this year alone, for example, there have been over 25,000 homicides. Um, Especially assassinations of journalists and such. Yes, yes. Even more worrisome, of course, uh, uh, or the the, the absolute impunity with with which journalists and activists are are alike are are murdered. Yes. He's also uh, comes into power by dragging cases such as the the disappearances of the 43 students um, a few years ago, which still hasn't been solved. Um, So there's not only this violence crisis, there's also an economic crisis. There's been um, a rapid increase of people living below the poverty line, increasing um, inequality, economic stagnation. But um, most importantly, I think uh, politically, he's he's inheriting just a general discontent of the population towards the, the the politicians, and particularly I'm talking here about like high-level politicians, so governors and things like that, uh, positions like that. There's an incredibly low approval rate uh, for the exiting president, Peña Nieto, uh, and people just don't trust politicians anymore. There's been a wave, uh, an unprecedented wave, I would say, of corruption scandals, mostly involving governors, but also involving deputies and high level. Um, and the former president as well. Oh, yes. And of course, mm-hmm. let's not forget that the huge, I would say that the biggest scandal was the one involving the, the former president and his wife. That's right. Yes. Uh, so he's inheriting this this uh, this country in crisis. And I think that a few of the uh, things that were very successful for him during the campaign was definitely his discourse against corruption. Um, so he identified, as, as you said um, in the introduction, he did identify neoliberal policies as this one of like these big evils and market reforms as basically enabling um, these politicians to just line their own pockets with with uh, public money. And I think that that was an incredibly uh, efficacious speech for the campaign. And one of the things I think that are most noteworthy about the speech that he gave uh, in during his inauguration was, again, uh, focusing on, on neoliberalism as, you know, uh, a big evil that had started in the 80s, these technocratic governments, and then focusing again on corruption. But I think importantly, something that was definitely quite um, quite noteworthy was that he said, I am not going to be persecuting uh, former politicians. So basically mm. saying, you know, let's start with a clean slate. People that are no longer here, let's just let them go. And I think that that was actually quite surprising and quite at odds. So do people consider that 
sort of a nod towards impunity because you, you've referenced earlier the the murder of the 43 students at Ayotzinapa uh, in Mexico a number of years ago. We've interviewed parents and family members of those, um, those slain students. And so um, on the one hand, you could look at that as a brand new start, but on the other hand, you could look at it is sort of the same old Mexico. How do you see it? Yes, exactly. Um, so I, I think I see it. Uh, I mean, I definitely think that it is a nod towards impunity. Um, one of the, I think that one of the, one of the issues that basically broke the trust between uh, the citizens. I mean, citizens are just really, really upset at the government right mm. now. And I think that one of the one of the issues that has contributed the most is this impunity. I mean, we have governors that have been stealing, you know, money that was meant to be for hospitals, money that was meant to be for social programs. They've just been stealing them. And they've either they never basically just they they never they're never subject to a to a judicial process or they are, but they just get away with it. Right. Mm. So they just go through the motions of, you know, pretending that they're being tried and whatnot. And then a few months later, then they're just released. Um, He did say specifically about the the Ayotzinapa students. And I also think that this uh, speaks to the vagueness with which he can act. He's very successful at navigating this this very vague speech as to, you know, what exactly is going to happen. Because right after he said, oh, we're not going to persecute anyone, uh, immediately he he said, well, but we are going to create this truth commission to Mm. see exactly what happened, in particular with Ayotzinapa. And I think that that was... um, that it is kind of a, a politically savvy strategy on part of him to focus the issue of disappearances, which is an issue that's basically extends to the whole uh, territory of, of Mexico. But just by focusing on this one particular case of the 43 students, I think he's sort of like, you know, making the motions and saying like, yes, let's bow and let's let's. Uh, Let's solve this one issue as opposed to actually addressing. Let's briefly talk about mm-hmm. um, those disappearances and because it's, very, it's a very seminal moment in Mexico's history. Uh, give us a little background about Ayotzinapa, the students, and its history of um, social movements and such. And yeah, so, uh, I mean, Ayotzinapa is, is, uh, was a case uh, that became very famous because for the longest time, these teachers' colleges in rural areas have uh, participated in these activities that are, I wouldn't say that they're violent, but they're definitely slightly coercive. So they would go into the highways, for example, they would stop cars and aggressively ask for money. Mm. Uh, that's how I would that, that's how I would put it. So they don't they don't necessarily threaten you or anything, but but it is kind of uh, you know if you don't know the the if you don't know the sort of like uh, traditions there, it right. would be a little bit scary to just go there and like have a bunch of people stop you in the car. And now ask that would have been money. outrageous here a number of years ago, but now we're shutting down the Dan <laughs> Ryan and the Kennedy and such, so it's not so outrageous anymore. Yes, exactly. So I, I do think that you know, like if you know that this happens, it's definitely not scary or anything. Right. But but they are they can be seen by some as, as aggressive tactics. Um, and one of the things that they also used to do was basically take over some uh, buses. Uh, and use those buses to transport their students to a traditional um, protest that occurs um, on October 2nd, which is which is commemorating um, a big student massacre in, from 1968. Mm. And during one of one of these uh, taking over the the buses and like trying to ask uh, to, to ask for money, 43 students from the from the Ayotzinapa uh, Rural um, Teachers College were d- d- basically disappeared. Um, so that was already bad enough, of course, but I think that one of the 
one of the biggest sources of outrage was actually what happened afterwards, which was the the, the government of the then president uh, Peña Nieto mandated an investigation. And then the investigation was uh, basically what what they said was, well, you know, like the students were kidnapped. They were by murdered. security and police. By, by security and police, and then they were uh, given to uh, members of organized crime. Correct. Because of course, there's a uh, uh, a lot of the a lot of the local pol- and municipal police forces are on the payroll of the of organized crime, um, and. You know, like they were given to them and then they were uh, murdered and they were um, incinerated and they've disappeared. And most forensic uh, evidence that has been conducted afterwards has actually said that that's not that there's really no evidence to say that that happened. Hence the necessity to build this truth commission that AMLO has. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum. And we're talking about Mexico's new president with Malena Ong. She's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Chicago. And in a few minutes, a former Chicagoan shares his efforts to revolutionize education as we know it. So stay tuned. So, Malena, you talk about an interesting nexus between uh, police and security forces and organized crime. And as you know, uh, one of the reasons uh, that Mexican politicians give for the harsh tactics that they've used over the many decades is because of narco-trafficking and that world. And so where does the new president, uh, Mr. Obrador, stand on organized crime? Yes, that is that is quite one. I, I would say that that's one of the most contentious issues, actually, about his his policies. He uh, recently he recently supported what most people have seen as a further militarization of national security. So uh, recently, actually, the Supreme Court ruled that the law that basically enables the militaries to take over security tasks um, was unconstitutional. And uh, AMLO, instead of moving away from that, from that militarization, he actually said, no, we do need to trust the militaries. He actually devoted a big part of his inauguration speech to praising the armed forces um, and, you know, to say like, well, you know, this is very much in line with his mm-hmm. with his leftist mm-hmm. and, and discourse and saying, oh, you know, the, the militaries are, are made by the people like these are the people that are fighting for the people. Um, and so I think that that's mostly been received with um caution, to say the mm. least, by mainly by human rights activists, right, that have followed the abuses that some members of the armed forces have committed in the past few and years. And once again, normally that would have seen unusual in the United States, but currently the president has sent the army to the Mexico-U.S. border, so it's not so outrageous. Um, finally, you know, immigration is always a big story. When we talk about Mexico in this country, we haven't spoken about it much because I think there are a lot of other stories that are just as, if not more important, especially to Mexican people. Let's talk about immigration from the perspective, not of Mexico's northern border, but quickly from its southern border, about the relationship between Mexico and Central America. What are some of the issues that come to mind for you? Well, so although he hasn't, although he hasn't um, openly addressed the relationship between countries, I do think that he has been very clear at least in speech, if not in actions, that he wants his um, foreign uh, policy, particularly the policy towards uh, immigrants in in Mexican soil, towards Central American immigrants in Mexican soil, to be guided by uh, uh, a concern for human rights, which I do think that that is actually quite uh, an advance from the previous um, administration that saw it as a 
as an issue of security or or an issue actually to be swiped under the rug. There was not really much. So it, he has suggested, for example, that there was going to be a temporary visa a program to just basically grant visas to these immigrants so that they can be legally in Mexican soil, which I think that that's uh, going to minimize the problems of having, you know, a large influx of population not being able to legally work. Um, so at least that's that's something that he has been um, talking about. And I think that there's definitely something to look forward to, to see what's going to happen specifically in the south border to see if he's going to uh, retreat the military forces from there. And when we spoke earlier, you told me that the caravan is not a big story like it is here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, they have mentioned it when, when, yeah. he, when he has been asked, but, uh, but no, mostly the, his, his speech has focused mostly on um, Mexico. He, him and his, his Secretary of Interior and the Secretary of, of Foreign Affairs, they both have mentioned, you know, oh, we, we really need to respect human rights. We really need to, you know, like help them um, help uh, settle these this people, you know, like to see what, what is it that, that is going to happen afterwards but there's uh you know yeah for all the for all the 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 concern that's here in the u.s it actually hasn't been one of the one of the main concerns professor ong thank you so much for being with us there's so many more issues around mexico that we can talk about and we'd love to have you back again soon thank you so much for having me Melina Ong is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and she's with us to talk about the new president who was just sworn in over the weekend andres manuel lopez obrador thank you so much thank you And in about 90 seconds, you'll hear a conversation Jerome McDonald had with a former Chicagoan who's trying to start an education revolution in India, and he hopes that it comes to America. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And it's time for a Monday edition of our Global Activism segment when we feature people who make the world a better place. And Jerome recently caught up with Manish Jain, coordinator of Sheikh Center, the People's Institute for Rethinking Education and Development. Manish is originally from Chicago, but he's now based in India full-time, trying to disrupt traditional education models. And in 2015, Jerome and I visited the Institute in Udaipur, Rajasthan, and it's a really fascinating and beautiful place. And we're going to get a video up a little bit later on our Facebook site of when Jerome and I were in India to visit um, uh, Manish over there. And so you'll be able to go there and see that. And now here's Manish Jain explaining what the folks do at Shiksantar. Shikshantar is a movement to reimagine education. So all over the world, we have these 19th century schools that are still sitting there. In some places, they help kids. and a lot of places, they are creating lots of problems in terms of kids' mental health, their creativity, their capacity to move towards their dreams and self-actualize. So we thought that we should have a movement to create new models for what education could look like for the 21st century. So we've been working with a lot of local communities there, working with our cultural systems, with local ecologies, to try to create models which are more relevant and which really help kids uh, develop the skills and leadership uh, that they need to deal with the problems that we're facing in the world. 
And so shikshanter, the word is kind of a combination word. Yes, the combination is shiksha, which means deep learning, and antar, which means change, transformation, and difference. We are really looking at supporting lots of new models all over the country. Now, you've been working on a model uh, that you call the Creativity Ada. Yes, and Creativity Ada. This, this is a school in Delhi. Yeah, so a lot of times when people think about democratic learning spaces or creative learning spaces, uh, those spaces are usually set up for people who are well off. And what we wanted to do was create a model which people from low-income communities, slum areas, could actually access. And so we decided to create this Creativity Adda two years ago in a government school. And it is a kind of autonomous free learning space for kids. The background was that there's a lot of kids who fail out of class nine in Delhi. And so some people had contacted me and they had said, what can you do about this situation? So I said, there's two things. Either you tighten the noose or you loosen it. Tighten the noose meaning <laughs> that, more, that more tutoring, more tutoring, more mats, more extra classes, basically, which with kids who have already have had a low history of low self-esteem and who don't feel at all connected to the school it doesn't necessarily help them very much. And I said, loosen the noose means let's give kids three, four hours a day to really work on their creativity, their passion, find what energizes them. Let's try to reinitiate their intrinsic motivation, their own self-discipline, their own self-awareness. And if they become confident human beings again, that'll start to translate into many different areas of their lives, whether it's a school environment or their home environment or their community environment. So what does a normal day look like at the Creativity Ada? So the first thing that we do, which very few schools ever do, is we ask kids, what are you interested in? What do you want to learn? So rather than coming with a ready-made package of curriculum interventions for them, we started to work with them to generate and build the space together. So even the physical space, the kids have been very much involved in designing the spaces. So there are five hubs right now that are functioning in the Creativity Adda. So every day there's a Slow Food Chefs Academy. So we have a little urban farm in the school. This is mind you, again, I'm reminding you, it's in a low-income government school, inner city, Delhi. Wow. So you have an urban farm there where kids are growing organic food. They take it. There's a chef's academy, so they learn every day how to make fresh, healthy foods. They, we are doing a lot of work with millets like uh, in the U.S. you have quinoa, which is one of them. But in India, we have many, many varieties of millets. So they're learning how to make birthday cakes with those millets and pizzas and traditional recipes as well. And we have like eighth graders who can now make more than 100 recipes. <laughs> like they're chefs. You have to call them chefs. There's nothing else except that, right? That's amazing. So, and they have been going out in the community, uh, setting up little stalls, getting experience as young entrepreneurs. So we're giving them a choice also, like experience what it feels like to plan, to make money, to take a product out, do all of that. And also experience what we call gift culture, making things, going out and offering it to, you know, homeless people. So the service side of it as well. So they, And which gives you more joy and pleasure? Experience both of them. That's just one hub of That's just of one hub. That's one hub. And the kids, even once a month, they run their own cafe in the school. It's a community cafe, so they invite parents and friends and all of that, their neighbors. So they have a cafe, which they, again, get the experience of how to run it, how to manage it, how to deal with the finances, 
how to do with the designing and decoration and how do you prepare the food and serve it and plate it in a very beautiful way. So all of those things the kids are actually doing. What are some of the other hubs? So another hub is we've set up is a music hub. So it's actually, I think in the U.S., people also know it, that music and the arts is a fantastic way for kids to learn. There's actually interesting a lot of, just as an aside, one of the premises is that we've been in, and there's actually some interesting TED Talks that have been given on this also, schools are killing creativity. So I used to say that like as a blanket statement, and I said, wait a second, there's two exceptions to that. There are two spaces where kids are super creative in schools. One is on cheating on exams. <laughs> And we made actually a little film on this. There's so many techniques that kids have come up with. It's like amazing, amazing how smart they are with that. And the other is escaping out of the school. So escape routes, <laughs> which I'm making a film on that right now as well. <laughs> but what the ADA is actually doing is that kids actually want to stay in school. They spend four hours a day having time to do what they want to do and to work together. So we have a, a music hub, which I think there's some other projects I've heard about in the U.S., which you know, they found that kids having music every day really helps them focus. So the kids have started their own band also. They're going around and performing in different public spaces around the city. So, again, learning a skill, but then knowing how to take it out in the world and how to actualize that this is not just a hobby, but this could be a career for me. The other thing to know about in India, which is a pretty scary statistic, is the government is predicting in the next 20 years, there will be 180 million unemployed youth. And nobody has any clue what to do about this. There's no strategies really on the table. And so we are saying that, you know, if kids are coming out after 12th grade and they don't know what to do, I mean, this is a question we have to be asking You've gone through your system. What do you have for them at the end of the day? All over the world, jobs are shrinking. But if they have their own answer, right, they, they're in business. They're going. Uh, so that's the idea. So there's a music hub. There's a dance hub. There's a design studio and maker space. So kids are uh, doing carpentry, robotics, electronics. They started a repair cafe. So they're inviting people in the neighborhood, bring your old toasters, bring your own... <laughs> mixers, your washing machines, whatever, your irons will fix it for you. I was just with them, so they were upgrading somebody's music system, you know, so all kinds of things that that hub's working on. Uh, there is the sports stations. The space isn't that big, so a lot of things they're doing with roller skating and with chess, with a little bit of badminton, uh, table tennis, so things like that. Then there's a filmmaking studio, uh, community media, so filmmaking, they've done some things with community radio, website design, uh, photography. So the kids have made their own little filmmaking groups. So they've taken a few projects in the community to make films for different groups there. And the kids are helping to run the space. It's democratically managed. So there's a whole council of the kids. They make decisions. They get uh, around 5,000 rupees a month, which they decide how they want to spend on different activities I'm talking with Manish Shane, and we're talking about his creativity, Ada, which has been taking place in Delhi. Uh, it's a government school in a low-income area in Delhi. And the government is okay with this because <laughs> what I know about India's learning system is test scores up, yeah. and you get assigned to yeah. life by your so test I've scores. I've been actually saying uh, publicly the the examination system in India is a human rights violation. It doesn't assess really wide ranges of intelligence and practical skills and 
understanding about life, you know, social emotional skills that kids have. So in India is one of the worst rates of suicide, teenage suicide, particularly during this March, April period, there's a huge number of suicides because of exam pressure and failure in exams. So the government is also quite desperate for things. What is interesting is we're working with a local government. Uh, one of the members of Legislative Assembly there has really fallen in love with this idea. So he's really been stewarding it within the government system. There's a lot of resistance from the bureaucracy, to be honest. You know, we have one champion who's kind of holding it up and uh, there's a lot of interest also now from companies who are doing corporate social responsibility. They're really finding this model something unique. The biggest thing in this is actually we're really trying to support, build a culture of peer-to-peer learning. Whether the school changes or not at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If kids are learning with each other, which they do anyways, uh, despite the school support, that they start to do it in a much more open and positive way that uh, lots of magic starts to happen. One of the other projects you're involved in is more on the university level. There's a um, group of 35 universities in India who are working on whatever we want to call it, experimental learning, uh, alternative learning. Yeah, experiential learning. Experiential learning. And that's many universities and institutions that are working on making a difference. Yeah. So these are all alternative universities. Uh, Many of them are not recognized by the government but we have lots of people coming there. Uh, We started one nine years ago called Swaraj University. So there are a lot of people coming there. There's workshops on things like permaculture farming or uh, nonviolent communication or eco-architecture, filmmaking. So there's lots of different areas which people are coming. A lot of people are coming because they want to get into entrepreneurship. They need support. So there's a kind of ecosystem to support them. So we're building up an alliance of different projects all over the country and to try to offer a different vision for what higher education can be. The classic critique, which is in the U.S. and all over the world, is these are ivory towers. They don't really have much contribution to local communities, to the local economy. So we are trying to develop a model which really can get young people to have more space to see a dream. Actually, it's very interesting that, you know, when we were probably growing up, Jerome, uh, people have their midlife crisis when they were, you know, like 40, 50 years old. And I'm finding 25-year-olds in India are starting to have midlife crises. And they're just like, we don't want to do this rat race job. Life has to be something more. We've come with a different purpose. So a lot of those people are connecting with these alternative universities and trying to figure out, you know, what they can do to contribute to the world. And we visited uh, Sawaj University when we were in India, and it's a really cool place. You've greened a whole mountain there and are living in an organic, uh, happy place with people doing all sorts of projects and doing their own building projects, and Mm -hmm. everybody does their own thing, and there's a lot of happiness. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm in Udaipur, Rajasthan, and we're here with the India Development Service. We're looking at some of the projects that they've funded over the years, and we are at Sawarj University, and we're here with Manish Jain. Nice to see you. Hi, Jerome. Nice to see you. Well, it looks great. You got a lot of homemade fences here with bamboo and other items. A field of wheat growing here, organic wheat. Mm-hmm. 
this has become a little oasis. There's more than 200 species of birds come around here now because of the greenery. Uh, also some wildlife. They're uh, nilgai, which are uh, blue bucks. And also there's a few panthers which roam around. In the no area. kidding. Yes, panthers also. <laughs> in the rainy season, lots of snakes. So everyone gets a little education in identifying different snakes. Several of the young people have learned to be very good snake catchers also. People can see a video of it on our Facebook page at WBEZ Worldview. Yeah. And I think how do we do things together? So we have also there's this kind of mental images. You have to be the rugged individual and fight your way into the world. And I think we are looking at how do we build more collaborative models where people can really work together and find, uh, you know, what we call solidarity economy or the uh, gift culture where they can really Sure, because this is what, at the end of the day, you know, our emotional well-being is connected to how well we feel connected to other people and place and all of those things. And I met people at your university who were working in the gift culture. They mm -hmm. have their alternative healers and uh, healthcare practitioners, and they are doing their thing and accepting what people will give back. Yeah, and they're still they're surviving still, <laughs> so it's a good thing. Do you ever feel like you're rolling a really big boulder up a hill? The whole rest of the universe is uh, moving at the rat race pace and indentation is hard to make. Um, if you asked me like 10 years ago, I would have said yes. Um, I see so many changes happening around positive changes and people like you, even in the U.S., 10 years ago, nobody knew about organic food. We are now in India trying to get models where everybody can afford organic food. That's the kind of game that a lot of us are working on. Uh, yoga, same thing. So people are really looking at happiness. This little country of Bhutan, I think, burst the bubble for everyone. and said, you guys have money, you have technology, you have weapons, armies, everything, but are you happy? So I think that there's more and more questions around what really gives us happiness, which is where we are trying to also open up this conversation because the rat race is not going to, we're seeing it. It gives people heart attacks and <laughs> breakdowns and all kinds of things, but rarely does it really deliver real genuine happiness. So in South America, there's a huge movement too, if you know about that, Buen Vivir. So people are asking, what is a good life? You know, Because that, again, the model we've been fed, whether it's in South America or India or even in the U.S., that model is falling apart. And so I think we're in very exciting times where people are really opening up these fundamental questions again. Yeah, a lot of it goes back to the kind of fun, creative child life that we are born into with this. Uh, we are these creative universes, and we seem to lose that as we go through uh, our educational process and we get too uh, narrowed or focused or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what's important to realize most of the world still, they blame the victim. <laughs> Problem is not with the system, it's with you. You're not smart enough, you're not creative enough. So what we're trying to keep bringing back is like there are fundamental design flaws in the system. Like I can give you one example. So if you're doing something creative, anybody, cooking or filmmaking or painting or whatever you, gardening, usually it takes most of us about 20, 30 minutes to just get in the mood, the kind of creative flow. And then when you're in it, you might be able to do it for four, five, six, ten hours, whatever, you know, like you're totally into the flow. 
But what does school do? School tells you, get in something, get into maths, start working on it. Okay, ding, 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 the bell is there, 40 minutes is up, now jump into something else. So we keep kids at a very, structurally, it's designed to keep kids at a very superficial level, not to get in anything into depth. There's no time or space, and all of the subjects are fragmented, nothing to do with each other. So I think that if we start to see there are structural problems, and the other thing with the creativity, I just want to say what's interesting is we're telling groups, if you really care about the poor, social justice, then it's not a matter of one little program here or one little workshop here. Kids need four to five hours every day to develop their skills, their leadership, their understanding of life, connection to community. So let's really make a serious commitment to that and stop, you know, pretending we're doing something for the poor or this is the best we can do. We can do much more. And it doesn't cost a lot to put these kinds of programs into place. For people who want more information about this kind of thing, where do they get it? Uh, they can get it on our website. There's a lot of not only about our work, but we've put in all kinds of amazing connections and resources from projects all over the world. So our website is uh, shikshantar.org, and there's a lot of stuff there. It's really good to encourage people to visit. <laughs> Manish Jain is co-coordinator of Sheikh Santer, and it's located in Udaipur, Rajasthan. But Manish is back visiting family in this area where he grew up, and it's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really a life-changing event when Jerome and I were in Udaipur, and uh, we went to Shikshantar. So please go to our Facebook site, and we just posted the video on Twitter. Jerome is back tomorrow, and he's going to talk again with Ted Fishman, author of China, Inc., about the 90-day deadline the U.S. gave China to sort out its end of a potential trade deal. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by myself and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and to the great Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.